Welcome into the show. Thanks for tuning in this Thursday morning, June the 13th. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call at all time zones in between and around the world. Coming up in just a few minutes, we have Yael Averbush West joining us. Really excited to talk to her. And um, it's been a great week so far. A lot of great feedback from the lineup, and uh, we are really excited to have been able to put this together, opening up the World Cup in France this summer um, with this lineup has been a real pleasure, and uh, we've really enjoyed it, and I, and I hope you have as well, and, and the feedback in the comments has been really positive, so we, um, we you know, we think you're enjoying, enjoying it also, so... Um, Look, this morning, as we kind of, you know, look through the last 48 hours of the Women's World Cup, you, you really had two things going on. The, the first, there's been still an uproar over the fact that the U.S. Women's National Team scored 13 goals, and now it's, it's, it's kind of morphed into this controversy about the fact that they were celebrating and having such a good time at, at 13 goals. And... You know, I get it. You can go either way in terms of, you know, do you think they should be celebrating? Should they not be celebrating? And and, and now we put in parameters. You know, if it's your first World Cup goal, then it's okay. You can celebrate, but, you know, you have to have some respect for your opponent and then blah, 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 all this stuff. I mean, the, the, the idea that you score 13 goals, you're setting all kinds of records, you're having fun. I I don't know. I don't see the big controversy here. I, I just don't think it's that big of a deal. I, I do think that there's a very real chance that the U.S. scored more goals in that one game than they may score combined for the rest of the tournament. That is a – I'm not saying that that's going to happen. I'm saying that that's much more likely than them scoring 13 goals. Um, And then yesterday you have France who comes out and, and has a really, really tight game, close game with Norway and wins two to one. And, you know, now everybody's like, well, I mean, France looked really good in the first game and U S scored 13 in theirs. And you, you have to look at the opponents. You have to look at, you know, the, the teams in the matchups as they come. And, you know, I, I, I don't sit, sit here and watch these matches and think, Oh, the U.S. women's national team are just going to breeze to a repeat. Nor do do I think that um, you know France is in trouble because they they had a two one match. I mean, I think I think the U.S. is going to definitely get out of their group. It would be massively um, you know a shock if they didn't get out of their group, and 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 so I think that's going to happen going to happen but I think against Chile I think you know Chile is going to want to try to possess the ball and you know for all the talent that we have tactically uh, we don't exploit that talent enough and therefore we we do provide teams with the opportunity to possess the ball um, you know the last time U.S. played against France they struggled they lost um, when they played against Spain they struggled it took individual performance to get us uh, to to a victory um, and, and, you know, I think Chile is going to try to possess the ball and, and Sweden always plays this tough. And so I, I think this idea that, you know, we're getting a little bit of 
you know, out of whack on both sides, right? That the 13 oh, oh, this this is the 92 dream team and no one's going to be able to touch them kind of mentality. I think, I think there's a little bit of out there. And then I think there's some on the other side who are just completely like, you know, these, these women are disrespectful to the game and blah, blah, blah. blah. And I, I just think we're somewhere in the middle. I think we're somewhere in the middle. I don't, I, I don't think the women's national team in, in any way, shape, form or fashion were, were across the line. Is it something maybe I would have done at 13? Probably probably not to that level but i i mean you're in a world cup and you're scoring and you're having a good time i didn't see you know any any taunting as i would define it and so i mean look to each his own in that you do whatever you you know whatever you want whatever you feel comfortable with in that moment uh in terms of you know thinking though that that result is is indicative of the rest of the tournament i i think that that is is a very naive take um thailand are just not a very good team and for all of the strengths of the women's national the u.s women's national team uh the 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 thailand women's national team is weak in those areas it was it was really a perfect storm um or or in the case of thailand the 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 absolute worst uh opponent that they could face um and so it's an it's an opponent that that you know can can outpace them that can out jump them um and it, it was it was tactically um you know a bad setup for thailand as well like they they tactically just didn't approach the game very well on top of the fact that they they had the the bigger faster stronger hill to climb against this u.s women's national team like I just think it was a struggle all the way around for Thailand and and you know seeing that 13-0 score is is indicative of that. Actually, I mean I actually thought at halftime when the US women's national team were up 3-3-0 watching the match, I felt like the US were underperforming at 3-0. Like that's how bad the matchup was and then obviously in the second half they they turned it on and especially as 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 the as the thailand began to tire then it was it was all she wrote and and the u.s women's national team just blew through them and um you know 13-0 and you contrast that with yesterday's france norway match 2-1 it was a battle end to end i mean even watching um nigeria and uh in korea south korea um you know that was that was a match where um, they had chance after chance after chance. They get an own goal. Nigeria is up one nil, and then is able to on a on a great counterattack open up and get that second goal. And then after that, it was it was all she wrote. You, there was really no way back at that point, but. It was a it was a much closer match than the two nil score and could have gone either way. There were lots of chances there, um, and and so in all of these matches, it's been pretty close. And I think that I think that the the outlier, the anomaly of the U.S. women's national team match against Thailand, is specific to those two teams. I don't believe that there is that disparity across this tournament. I just think that you have the number one seed in the tournament number one ranked in the world 
facing an opponent that was absolutely the the worst matchup you could put in terms of an opponent for the US women's national team in terms of in, in terms of them having a chance and you know that is what we saw and um you know I think it's going to be a, a much tougher battle for the US women's national team going forward from where they are today but you know it is what it is uh, you play the games that are in front of you and you do what you can and you know I certainly think the U.S. women's national team are gonna keep coming and keep coming for more and it'll be interesting to see how these next few matches play out and then line up for the the knockout rounds in terms of the opponents and and who's matched up where and in in all of that we we'll see you know we'll see where the pathway is we'll see who who is you know destined to meet in what round and that kind of thing and if all of those things play out um yeah I, you know i think at some point we're probably staring at a u.s versus france match and and although france is not um you know put up a 13 on the board um, I think you have to set that aside, the, the U.S.-Thailand match, and you have to really look at what comes after that. And looking at round two and round three of, of the of the group stages, see how the U.S. women look in those matches, and then you start to get a better feel. And then knowing the history between you, the U.S. and France, I think it's going to be uh, a challenge uh, for the U.S. women to get past France. Um, and not to say that they can't do it um, at all. I'm just saying I think it's going to be a challenge. I think that these tests are going to get tougher. So, you know, there were there were players that scored their first ever World Cup goals who were, you know, were ecstatic, and, and that's going to be a moment they get to celebrate for the rest of their, their lives, and, you know, we'll see if they get a chance to score again in the, in the future uh, in, the, in the tournament uh, as these games get tougher. But... Um, you know, the looking at the landscape of women's soccer, you know, the, the quality of play uh, from from quite a few of these teams is is really like from a tactical sense is really good. I mean, really good. Like they're the 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 Dutch team looks really good tactically. The Spanish team, I know they they they, you know, had a, a hard luck uh, loss yesterday to Germany one nil could have easily scored multiple times um you know it was just just didn't get it in the back of the net but were really close played really well you know in terms of the the quality of play were to me much better than the german national team and it's why i keep saying that if you look at the spanish uh, women's national team and you don't see the future you're blind um, the, the Spanish women's national team program is on the rise. And I think over the next 10 years, they are going to be dominating, um, as they get um, better players coming through their tactical system. Um, and, and, and that emphasis and priority is placed from a federation level on these, uh, these programs like the U S women's national team. Uh, has been getting uh, more priority than the rest of the world. Are they equal to the men's national team in the U.S.? No. But in Spain, they're starting to put uh, priority there. We're going to see that with the Spanish national team and see them start to rise. 
even beyond what we're seeing now, what we're seeing now is impressive. Um, you know, it's, it's really, um, a shame that they didn't at least get a point out of yesterday's match because they, they're, they're playing really well. They just, they're, they're, they're having a few mistakes here and there. Um, I, I would say they're more individual mistakes and tactical errors and in lack of execution from an individual standpoint. And when you, when you get into that, you know, it hurts the team and it, and it's definitely hurt them. And, um, you know, but, but three good matches yesterday, uh, today, um, we have uh, some more uh, matches in this Women's World Cup coming up at noon Eastern, Australia and Brazil. And at three Eastern, we have South Africa and China. And uh, so, you know, two, two more fixtures uh, to, to, to take in today as this Women's World Cup continues on and is continuing to... Um, to build and, and build towards a final, um, you know, it's it's been some really good stuff and, and uh, you know, excited to see where this goes and to see how these next few matches for the U.S. Women's National Team shape up um, will be an interesting story as well. Uh, the, the sponsor of this half hour is Dut Kick Brand. Uh, if you have not gotten your, your planner at Dut Kick Brand, it's a soccer planner. D-U-T-K-I-G brand.com. Again, that is D-U-T-K-I-G brand.com. Go there, take a look around, find you some stuff as you get ready for this next uh, season in, in kicking off in July or August, or maybe you're right now in the middle of a national tournament and you need something to chart out your place for your team. Whatever the case, go to dutkickbrand.com. Use the promo code DWSHOW when you place an order, and you'll get 10% off, and you'll support the show at the same time. So um, it's, it's a twofer right there, and uh, and helps you, and it helps us. So um, I'd like to thank Dut Kick Brand for being a sponsor on the show, and you can learn more about them at DutKickBrand.com. We will be right back after this with Yael Averbush-West.
Welcome back to the show. Thanks for tuning in this Thursday morning, June the 13th. We are really pleased to be joined by Yael Averbush West. Yael, how are you this morning? So um, give us a little bit of, of I, I, I always like to get a little bit of the background in, in this love affair with a game um, and the origin story for our guest. Where, where did this love affair with a game of soccer start for you? Yeah, so I um, initially started playing just because my friend in first and second grade played soccer. My parents are lifelong athletes but never played the game. So it was kind of new to us. Um, well, I'm very new to us. We had no idea what the heck we were doing. But I think, you know, my personality is kind of one of those people who, no matter what I do, I get very single-minded and focused on it. So pretty quickly, I remember, like, being all about soccer. I no longer wanted to do anything else. And I became very serious. So, um, you know, growing up in North Jersey, I was really fortunate to have wonderful coaches and mentors and a really rich soccer culture with people uh, living here from all around the world who understood the sport and and were watching games that weren't even offered on TV here in the U.S. at the time and just knew so much about the game and what it would take if I was serious about soccer to kind of pursue that um, that vision and that dream. So I had so many great people showing me things like, oh, no, you got to you got to watch soccer going on in Europe and watch these teams, watch Arsenal, watch whoever. And I hadn't heard of any of this. And then they were showing me things to practice on my own. And so I, I was hooked. I mean, by the time I was 11, I think I, I was like totally obsessed with soccer. So you, you're obsessed with soccer. You, you keep playing. What was the your youth path? What was that like in ter- specifically? Was it? Uh, was it a club, travel club type of environment that you're playing in at, say, 9, 10, 11? Or were you playing more locally and then later did some club? What, what was that like for you in terms of a player development pathway? Yeah, so the way it worked um, in North Jersey at the time I was kind of coming up through the system was that I, after my first, I think I played two seasons, so kind of a year of rec soccer. And then I tried out for what was called the travel team. And that was kind of like the local most elite level. Um, And, you know, the way I was, because I was so into this and I was at that time, even like practicing and watching the game outside of, you know, our two times a week team sessions and our game on the weekend, um, I was just progressing so much faster than the other girls in my age group. So what happened was I very, I was nervous to try out for the travel team. I made it. I felt really lucky. But then I quickly outgrew that level, and it was just not challenging anymore. So then I, I played up an age group with the local girls travel team. And, and similarly, like at first it was very difficult because they were a lot bigger and stronger and faster than me. But I kind of then again caught up to the level. And it, it was, once again, not so much of a challenge by the end of the season. So I actually, um, you know, had this, then we had a family debate kind of, do we start driving really far? I mean, I was still 11 years old, 12 years old. Do we start driving an hour to, you know, a more elite club? Or then there was also this boys team in my local town, Montclair, New Jersey. And uh, I was really fortunate to have, you know, my first coach who I grew up playing with was coaching the team. So it was kind of a little bit of a safe environment. So I actually was the only girl on that boys team for a couple of years. So I stayed local for a lot longer than other players did. You know, actually, my entire 
um, youth development prior to going to college, I played for local clubs and I opted to play for, you know, a club that was a 20 minute drive from me, you know, in high school, rather than driving down to what at the time was the most elite club, which is PGA in New Jersey. So I kind of took a little bit of a different path in that sense and found some really wonderful local coaches who just uh, continued to foster my love of the game and set up amazing development environments for me. That was, it was a little bit different though than playing with just the top girls in my age group. I was playing with older girls. I was playing with guys um, all the time. And then, um, you know, did the very, what was very traditional at the time was to also, in addition to club, try out for ODP. So I took the ODP route as well. So tried out, made the state team and went on to the regional pool and regional team and and played in the inter-regional events to be seen by national coaches. So in some ways, my soccer uh, player pathway was pretty non-traditional like I was one of the first people not to play for my high school team and it was very controversial and I like I said I kind of played with older girls and boys very often but then in some senses I did take a very traditional route in terms of at the first age group I could I tried out for ODP I went through that system um, ended up playing college soccer at the University of North Carolina and then following that I was really fortunate because there was no women's professional league at the time but following that WPS um, the former professional league had just started up. So I was able to um, go straight into a professional career in our country. So um, in a lot of ways, like I said, I had an untraditional path and upbringing, but then also in some ways it was very traditional. I love that. Uh, and I love the fact that, that, it, you know, every player has a different story, a different pathway or something that they, some road that they took. I think uh, oftentimes uh, we we look at at player development as one linear you know path. Well, you should do this, and then you should go play this, and then this leads to this. And for each player, the story's a little bit different. I mean, if you grow up in Brazil, it may be you know playing in the streets of the favelas, and it's you know it's uh, a totally different experience. Maybe you're not even playing you know full eleven aside soccer until you're a teenager. Um, in some cases and in other cases you may be you know playing on a full-size pitch and you're seven so there's all these different pathways and experiences and I love you know hearing those and then in 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 kind of diving down each of those roads and why you know certain things appeal to you what did you as a, a girl coming up in 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 northern Jersey looking for that extra challenging environment what was it like playing with all the boys did did it toughen you up did you feel like oh this is this is a breeze you know what what was that experience like specifically yeah oh gosh it was um it was my first experience really going outside of my comfort zone which became kind of you know I think all elite players will talk about the different ways that they went outside their comfort zone throughout their career and do it all the time. So it, it was the beginning of what became a very familiar feeling in my life, but it was really tough. I mean, at, socially, it was very uncomfortable and awkward because we're talking about, you know, these were middle school type years, so early teenagers. So it was very an interesting dynamic there. But then also just, I mean, at my very best, I was going to be an average player on the team. So I was all of a sudden playing with players where I saw 
wow, this, the bar is so far above where I am. And they were able to do things that, you know, I, I could never do on the field. And so I, I played very quickly, one and two touch. I was a forward at the time. So if I could get off a quick shot, it did score some goals. But I was definitely not a starter in the team. That, and the team didn't need me, I would say. Like, I needed the team. So it was a very, uh, you know, it brought me down to earth. And it would be easy, I think. And, and what happens today, often I see, is that you have a, a really elite level female player. And if you just play on your same age group team under the same coach for your entire youth development, you are always the star. And I absolutely did not feel that I was ever a star in my youth life coming up. I knew I was really serious and dedicated and I I knew I wanted to be a star, but I never felt like that, especially not on that boys team. Um, So yeah, I think that was the big thing for me was that it made me realize that the bar was so much higher than where it was what my view of it was when I played with the girls my age, um, which was an amazing thing soccer wise. But I think also, well, it made me very mentally tough. It has been an ongoing struggle for me, you know, up to this day in my career to be able to play in a level that's, you know, appropriate level for me and to be able to impact the game. Because really what I learned throughout a lot of my youth development was I could hang with really good players. And I still feel that way. I could jump into a pickup game with very elite male players and I can hang. I could play one, two touch, play quickly, stay in the rhythm of the game. But the challenge for me has always been, and I think it kind of started around this time, is can I step into my own level game with girls my age or appropriate level and, and be an impact player. And that transition for me um, was really difficult and it took me a lot of years and it's still something, you know, I struggle with all the time. Can you define that? What, what you mean by struggle in your own, you know, like going from say that boys environment to, you know, the age appropriate girls environment and, and that kind of shining or stepping up or, what have you, what do you mean that was a little bit of a struggle? Yeah. So for example, um, like I was saying, you know, I learned to play very quickly, one and two touch. Like I would never linger on the ball. I was not the one who was going to carry the ball for the team. Um, I would never try to use speed or strength or aggression against the boys. I found other ways to do it. I would have to think quickly and kind of almost avoid those physical confrontations because I knew I was outmatched. So what I developed in some sense was, like I, de- I developed a lot of skills that are hugely important in the game that I, that helped me to attain, you know, live my dreams and play at the highest level. But I also really shied away from developing certain skills that are necessary um, to to be an impact player on the team. And by impact player, I mean I, I'm thinking of some of the evaluations I would get from coaches uh, when I was starting to make this transition back through my high school years and even up through, you know, going through college. It was always um, and this is a big one. Can you uh, like impart yourself on the game? Can you dominate? These are all the words that I would always say. Okay, so you have really good technical skills, good game understanding, but can you use those to dominate the game? Can you impact the game more? Can you? Um, yeah, I think I think this is a big one. Impose yourself on the game. So I was kind of. Um, a very passive player in some senses because I was used to, like I said, hanging and trying to just fit in rather than being the one to take the attention, to take it upon myself, to carry the ball, to dribble, to try things. Though That was very outside of my comfort zone. Whereas most of, you know, the girls growing up and being the elite player in their environment, environments, 
immediately learned those skills. You know, if, if their team was going to win, it was because they were going to score a goal or two and have an assist. And I, I was never focused on helping my team to win. I was focused on not making my team lose, basically, which is not, now that I look back, not an ideal mindset. But at the same time, I'm very thankful for the skills I did learn there. So I think the, those evaluations of the time, they, they stuck in my head. I can literally remember the wording of them having to do with dominate, um, impact, those kind of things were really what I struggled with. Like I had the skill set and the tools, but I wasn't really able to use them properly to be dominant in the women's game. I think too too often that the the mind is is the area of the American soccer development uh, pathway and experience that is addressed the least. Oftentimes we're looking, you know, we look at skill and we look at you know speed and we look at size and we look at some of those things but when i and what i'm referring to i guess with the mind is that kind of uh, thought process even some emotion that uh, plays into it like that you're describing this idea that you know i don't want to lose the game for my team so i'm going to i'm going to do x and y um yes i'm developing skills yes i'm processing the game faster whatever but it's also a self-protective measure in and having our coaches that are developing and working with teams i I guess almost take on the role of a of a psychologist at times a sports psychologist to be able to say that's good what you're doing is good but can you do x can you do this can you you know, and, 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 and also develop or challenge in those environments our players to take risk and to encourage, um, you know, this this challenge that maybe you don't succeed at at first, but, but it in the end will make you a better player. Um, I, I do think that's an area that we, we need to get better as a whole in, in terms of our player development and um in improving that so you you go to play in college and um you know i i grew up as a as a duke basketball fan so you went to the school down the road um that you can name i i will leave it out uh <laughs> this is where this is where i hang up on you <laughs> right um so um it, just a little Duke story. I I had never visited the campus growing up. I uh, didn't grow up anywhere near North Carolina. And um but you know my my parents knew how much I I loved Duke. Uh, it was we had no connection to the school. Just randomly picked them in a tournament, uh, March Madness tournament when I was like 10 years old. Didn't know who they were. It was like one of those when you turn on the tournament and you just pick a team like I'm going to root for them in this game kind of thing. And uh, they won that game, and they kept winning. They got all the way to the Final Four. It was in 1990. They got all the way to the Final Four and got just smashed by UNLV by, like, 30 points. But that was it. That was my team. And um, I was like, you know, Dad, that's my favorite basketball team. And, and he was like, okay, you know, whatever. And so all through, you know, high school, I talked about how I wanted to go to Duke. And then um, when I was uh, running Eric Winalda's campaign for president of U.S. soccer, we went into North Carolina for an adult tournament um, as Big Carolina Cup. And so there was, like, teams from all parts of the country, but mainly from North and South Carolina that had come in for this tournament. And so we went in for this event, and I um, I knew we were going to be done, you know, Sunday night. So uh, he had the first flight out back to L.A., 
on Monday morning, and I didn't have anywhere I had to be on Monday, so I took the last flight out on Monday and um, stayed around and basically went and just hung out on Duke's campus for like six hours and uh, snuck in the gym and and met uh, John Shire, and they were getting ready to do practice, and then they kicked me out. Um, but uh, walked around the campus. I called my dad just uh, uh, while I was there and said, Dad, um, you're welcome. And my dad was like, what are you talking about? He knew I was at the Duke campus, like just hanging out. I said, you're welcome. And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, if I had come to the campus when I was in high school, you would be broke right now. You would have no money <laughs> because I would have made you somehow figure out a way to get me here. Um, but uh, that rivalry is, is such a good rivalry in all the sports, not just basketball, soccer, lacrosse. All, I mean, football. I mean, the, you, you know it. You lived it. So, um, so you go and you play in North Carolina, which is, I mean, the premier soccer experience in college for, for a player and uh and then get the opportunity to continue playing at what point in all of this time you your your upbringing coming uh growing up in in northern jersey getting the opportunity to play at the university of north carolina and then and then playing professionally did you go you know what it's time for me to try to help the next generation figure out player development oh wow uh that's a good question and i don't know if there was ever a single moment where i thought that i think for me um it was kind of a natural transition into doing something that was my initial really strong connection with the game. And what I mean by that is I actually, I was playing in Sweden a few years into my professional career and it was very lonely. You know, I was just there to play on the team. I didn't have friends or family, really. There were a couple other Americans there with me. But for the most part, after training every day, I was just on my own um, in Gothenburg, Sweden, to do whatever. So I did what I had done my whole life. I would take my ball out and kick it against a little wall of a flower patch or try a juggling trick or use a, different surfaces to juggle. And just um, it, it was so comforting for me. And then one time I thought, oh, let me just film this it was you know this is when this is embarrassing but you know people weren't post just easily posting videos all over the internet and stuff so I filmed it I think on my phone and then I uploaded it to YouTube and I put it out there and I called it a backyard skill challenge because I was thinking you know these were the things I did in my backyard like somebody challenged me initially to do 10 juggles and I was out there for hours frustrated throwing the ball kicking like and then I would try again and again and again and finally I got those 10 juggles and it was like the most exciting thing ever yeah. Um, so I thought, you know what, let me see who else out there wants to try these challenges. Um, and it really caught on and it was a fun way for me to connect with people from literally all over the world who shared this common passion that I had felt my whole life. It's like, no matter what's going on in your life, whether you're down, lonely, doing well uh, in your career, not well, I would always have my music on and I'd be able to go out and kick the ball around. And that was like the thing that made me feel centered. It's almost like my meditation. So initially it started as just sharing that feeling and that connection I have with the ball. And that is something that will last me long past my playing career, whether, you know, whether I was on the national team or not, or whatever was going on, it was just, that was so consistent for me. So I think for me, the big thing is sharing that experience with others. And, 
you know, the way I see it, when I when I look at youth development in this country, and there's a lot of talk now on, you know, are the numbers not increasing or their drop off, especially on the girls' side. And to me, it's because soccer in our country is another activity that kids do. They get dropped off at tutoring, gymnastics, soccer. They go to do their you know, whatever it is that they're doing, it's just an, another thing on the schedule for a lot of families, or it's something that kids initially take some interest in, and then parents are really propelling forward because they want their kids to get a college scholarship and all that. And that is not at all what the game was for me. The game is the way that I've expressed myself most throughout my life. And it's honestly, um, it's empowered me to be who I am and to teach me so much about who I am. So I, the way I think of it is that if players develop an individual relationship with the ball or an individual relationship with the game. That could even mean supporting a team and supporting a club, but just loving the game outside of it being the activity they show up at a few times a week because their parents drop them off there. That's where I think we will change the soccer culture in our country and we'll change the whole development path. But right now we have so many people who are just doing it as another thing they do or being kind of just are on this path and showing up every day, but I don't think they've actually chosen to do it for themselves and for me it was something that I really felt I chose to do for myself and I continue to choose to do for myself so sharing these training ideas and even thinking about youth development for me was a really natural transition because I just thought of it as what inspired me and what has been such an amazing tool and motivator throughout my entire life that constantly centers me and grounds me and has given me my confidence allowed me to overcome obstacles and feel on top of the world and all of those things and can I somehow foster that experience for other people out there. Uh, so that really now, like now I'm able to kind of think about it and articulate it. But for a long time, I was kind of just doing that by default because I felt how excited I was when my first coach, Ashley, showed me how to do how to do juggling, what juggling was, and that I could try to keep track and get up to 10. And that literally was a turning point in my entire life because that taught me, okay, you set a goal for yourself and you go out and it may take a lot of frustration, a lot of practice, but if you stick with it, you can accomplish that goal and then you can set the next goal. And so, I mean, it sounds silly, but juggling has literally been such a good metaphor for me in life in general, in terms of what it takes to set goals and to methodically go out and work to achieve them and how exciting and empowering that is and how it can change who you are as a person. So for me, youth development is is actually about developing these people who have this connection with the game rather than a set of skills or a certain ability to make a certain team or get a college scholarship. When we look at the the landscape, um, this is more of a macro question. Um, the youth soccer space is, is a $5 billion plus per year business it, in terms of a sports economy. It's larger than the German Bundesliga uh, in business. It's it's insane. Like we, I, I just don't think people even recognize this. But with all that money in the space uh, in American youth soccer, do you think that that is contributing to this uh, lack of joy, uh, feeling of pressure, chasing of scholarship, um, the, the, that the, the macro aspects of this, that basically... You know, I, I've all, I, I often say about youth sports, the biggest problem with youth sports are the adults. Um, and and we, we always find a way to mess it up for the kids. Uh, do, do you find that 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 is part of this aspect of, of, of kids not having that joy and feeling that pressure at eight, nine, ten years old because 
of just the the way the system uh, is primarily run right now? Yeah, you know, it's hard for me to say, like to really pinpoint the effect that that the economic part has on it. But I certainly think that in a lot of ways, our system is kind of flipped, flipped on its head. And meaning, um, you know, we have, there's so much money in it, like you said, but at the same time, not everyone has access and the people who can't afford it are left out, which you think if there's such a such a strong economy surrounding it and we have so, there so many families involved in the game are incredibly affluent yet there are kids who may be extremely talented or really love soccer who actually are not able to participate in the same programming so in some ways you know we have we have such amazing resources for some and then no resources for others and at the same time too i think that a lot of the money is going into strange things in my opinion and creating this com- competition between clubs and leagues and even between pro clubs and youth clubs, and and it, that's not where the competition should be taking place. The competition should be taking place among the players to prove themselves and be seen by those elite clubs. So we have a lot of people thinking they're elite because there's a lot of money involved, and because they travel to tournaments who are far, you know that are far away, and they stay in nice hotels, and they have awesome uniforms and great equipment, and they wear heart rate monitors when they play and get their data tracked. But elite to me has to do with the the mindset of the player and the player's desire. So there may be a lot of elite players not involved in that. So I think the economics surrounding um, the the game in our country have really complicated what would be a more ideal player pathway development-wise. And I think there needs to be work done on this to look at it and say, okay, well, this is a huge industry, but how are how are we using that and why is it competitive in the wrong ways maybe? And why can't we repurpose some of that to make certain programming free or really affordable to allow the proper players to be identified? So I think it's it's a wonderful thing that there is so much money and interest involved, but it's somehow it needs to be repurposed, I think, and focused properly to make sure that um, we're creating the proper experience at all levels, which may mean less of the pressure and less of the talk of, college scholarships and stuff like that at an early age and even more of it and more of the focus and more of those resources put towards the very serious players in an older age. That makes complete sense. And, um, I agree with you. I, I, I just, I, I look at our landscape and, um, you know, for as big of a country we are, that, that is both a blessing and a curse. Uh, and I think sometimes it's been used as an excuse by the Federation uh, specifically to say, well, we can't we can't solve these problems because they're just too big. And uh, I, I just I don't I don't my brain's not programmed that way. It's all my brain's programmed to always like figure it out. Like, what is the solution? How can we get there? What can we do? Uh, maybe maybe it's not perfect, but can we get it better? Um and 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 so you know i think that's often thrown out and i think a lot of times when we look at the youth space specifically you'll hear all of all of this resignation and talk about well i mean it you know there's nothing we, we can do it just the, the genie's out of the bottle and i'm just like it the money is we have the money the money and the interest is there it's what are we doing with it how are we redirecting it um what channels are we allowing that to flow through i mean if you think of money in a neutral standpoint uh think of it like a river and it's just flowing and you can you can basically build a channel 
off of the river and, and, and divert some of that waterway or the entire waterway into a different direction. Uh, and that's what, that's how money works. And, and so this idea that it can only flow in this one way that the way it's flowing now to me is, is, is crazy. And, and so, you know, finding a a different uh, way to approach that with our kids, I think is so important because I do see that I see kids, um, you know, who have great potential. They, they're, they're talented players and, and just the way the system is for whatever reason, they're, they're, you know, they, they go away, they quit playing. Um, some is, you know, for money. I mean, I, I used to run a, um, a non pay to play. It was a free to play youth club and it was very small. It's like a single squad, but in that squad we had kids that were not in the system so it wasn't like let's go you know create something and try to pull kids out of another academy it was like let's go try to figure out to do some programming for kids that aren't playing and so the majority of our kids were not playing organized soccer when we started this project and you know it really opened my eyes to like some of the issues and it goes beyond money it went into like parents work schedule and time so we were having to provide transportation there's a lot of things that go into like how do we provide more access and opportunity i think a lot of a a lot of people will just go well we can just give a scholarship well are you going to give them a ride too i mean like it's yeah you know what i'm saying i think that's such a good point it's accessibility because it's also a cultural thing like um a scholarship to participate is one thing, but like you said, it's about getting there. It's about, you know, if the team travels to tournaments, their hotel costs, everyone's going with their family. Well, where does the player stay whose family can't afford to travel with them and they can't get their own hotel room. So there's a lot of reasons that somebody would not feel welcome or comfortable outside of just the cost. And even things like, you know, you you travel with a group and, and uh, they're all getting dressed up to go out to dinner and they have all these nice clothes and you don't fit in. And there's so, there's so, there's so many things in our soccer culture that make, that, that exclude a, a group of people. And it, it is so much more complicated than simply the cost, I think, of participation. Completely. So, so tell us about Techna football. What, what, are you, what are you hoping to do with, with that in, in terms of impact on development and, and helping the next generation uh, become better soccer players, more in love with the game, et cetera? Yeah, so um, it really all started when I was talking about, you know, being in Sweden and putting these few videos on YouTube. I started to connect with the soccer world through sharing training ideas and um, things that players can do with the ball in a, in a very minimal space with creative type of equipment. You don't need to go out and buy anything or have access to a full bag of beautiful soccer balls and a goal and a grass field. You can go in a driveway or an alley somewhere and get better, um, which has been my personal experience. So I, after a while, I realized, you know, I wanted to give players something a little bit more concrete, an actual blueprint to follow rather than just all of these ideas put out on YouTube. Because, you know, you go on YouTube or Instagram or whatever and you search and there are just, I mean, there's, freestyle and trick shots and all kinds of training ideas but what do you actually do you know if you if you want to go out and do a training session like which of those things do you pick from it's hard i think for players to know what what to actually do so what technique football is is it is a blueprint with actual training progressions for players where it takes them through a session as if i was there with them as an individual coach so there's a short demo video a little written description and they they press go to time themselves for the drill and then they can come back and some of them you can record a score and it kind of instructs you as to how to track your improvement. So 
The app provides the blueprint in the training session as well as ways for players to track um, their scores and certain things to track improvement, but also how much time they've spent working on their own. Because my whole thing is you don't need to go out for two hours with the ball on your own. That's extreme. 10, 15 minutes every day. You know, I, I did a little math um, the other day and I counted up. If you just spend 10 minutes a day, which is almost nothing, you everyone has 10 minutes extra every day um, for an entire year. That's over 60 hours of extra work. So if you were to do that in the app, the, act, the app would actually show you at the end of the year, wow, you've done over 60 hours. So you can see that time accruing. So it allows players the ideas in terms of what to do, but also the tracking and the understanding of this process and that it adds up over time. And then also there's a competitive element where they can compete on leaderboards with players from all over the world who are also doing the same training. So it creates a community. But really, you know, the overall picture of this, and I, this is a really long-term vision for me. It's something I want to, you know, I'm working every day to continue to develop and grow is that I want this to be a resource that helps to foster that individual relationship with the ball in the game. Because I truly believe that whether these players become pro players and have long pro careers or just continue to play for fun or do this to help make their high school team or maybe to help them get into a college or go play college soccer, whatever it is, um, if you have that individual relationship with the ball in the game and you've done it yourself, not because your parent made you or not because you were supposed to, quote unquote, but because you went out with your ball to your driveway, to the alley on your own and did this, that that will be a lasting thing and that these will be players who stay in the game and, and love the game for what it is, well past whether they you know have a playing career on the field or not, well past that time, this will be lasting. So that's kind of the gist of what technique football is, but also kind of the larger picture of um, what I think it could become in our soccer landscape. I love that. And I love the fact that you're, you know, the, the thought behind the intentionality behind uh, the whole project and, and the way that you process and, and look uh, to make an impact on the culture is, uh, you know, I think a lot of times we, when you get into business, it's everybody's thinking dollars and cents and whatever. And, and you're, you're, to me, that's, kind of that next level uh thinking uh how how can what we do provide a, a better platform and better opportunity for our customers or in this case uh, the players uh to develop to love the game uh etc so um I, I really really like the way that you're approaching that i want to ask you one one final question uh before we go and um it's uh it's a question a variation of a question that I, I ask a lot of our guests. And um, that question is this, if, if you were in charge of American soccer for a day, you could do anything while you were in charge. You have supreme power to wave a magic wand and uh, right any wrong or any wrongs, uh, whatever, uh, with your day in charge, what would you do with, uh, with that day in power? Oh, wow. Uh, well, here's something, here's what came to my mind first, and this has been on my mind because I recently, I don't know if, if you saw this or if anyone listening has, saw the Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel um, episode on how Norway handles their youth sports. You, by any chance, did you see it? I have not seen that episode yet. I, I, I will go and watch it, though, now that you have. Yeah, have well, I it. recommend people watch it because what I would try to do is mimic what they've done. And what they've done, essentially, is they have kept, youth sports up until 12 years old so much later than we do 
all about fun and really limited competition. They don't do any rankings. Nobody travels to play on more elite teams than others. It's all about participation. And then after 12, what they do is they have the, the athletes themselves dictate if they would like to then get into serious training. And I think that model, although it's so against what we do here, I mean, it couldn't be more opposite than how we treat things here, to be honest. It's almost like completely reversed. I would totally flip what we're doing here and have it mirror that a lot more. So all about fun and inclusion and participation all the way up to 12. And then after that, it would be based on the player's decision and if they want to get into serious training and then we would ramp up the intensity and what we ask of those athletes into the teenage years and and young adulthood to make it a lot more serious even Um, and, and even more pressure and more competitive than it is now so I think I would have it be a lot less competitive at the younger ages and a lot more competitive at the older ages and all the way through the pro ranks I think we can make it even more competitive and even more cutthroat at the top and even more inclusive at the bottom. I love that answer. So I don't have a specific way of how I would do it within the day, but I'm sure a day is enough to accomplish that, right? Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, you, knowing you, what you would do is you would have a plan. So the moment you had that power, you'd be like, okay, let's put the plan in place. Uh, <laughs> I would work for 24 hours straight around the clock. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I want to ask you a, a quick question about your answer bef- uh, b- before we go here. Um, at the older ages, more competitive, even into the pro ranks, I'm paraphrasing your your response, what, what does that mean compared to what you see now and what would you like it to be if you had this set up in place? Yeah, so I think that we we use the term elite very loosely now. A lot of players think they're elite because they play in elite-style environments, and I think that we should have a lot more clarity surrounding that in terms of um, letting players know honestly where they stand. Not not finality. I, I really have a problem with when players are told, you will never make it because you're too small, you're too this, you're too that. No, that's not our decision in terms of fostering development our decision is to tell players where they stand right now um so when i say more elite i mean not fooling anyone to think uh that they're an elite player just because they play for a top club and being honest about where they stand well no you right now on the path you're on are not going to make it because you're not training on your own and doing extra you're not um you might not be that strong or fast but it's not because of that it's because you're not doing extra in the weight room and 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 working with an expert to to work on those things. So I think it's more about um, being really honest and blunt with people about when they say they have a goal or a vision, okay, well, you're not doing any of the things necessary to get there. And I've experienced this firsthand so many times. The number of kids who think they want to be professional players or play college soccer and what they're doing is just totally not in line with it. So I think that after a certain age, there needs to be way more clarity surrounding, well, what does it actually look like to be a professional player? If that's what you say your goal is. And if you're not doing something that looks in line with that, you need to know. So I think, um, yeah, being more selective with how we use the term elite and being more honest with athletes about what trajectory they're on and what trajectory is necessary to actually accomplish what they say their goals are. That makes sense, and I'm glad that you made that clarification. Uh, I really appreciate the sincerity of your answer, and uh, and I am very supportive of of your one day in charge. It's always it is always fun to hear the answers. They're all over the place, but they're usually really really good 
answers and and for me the one thing i i get out of all of these answers is the fact that there we have a lot of issues and uh and a lot of ways that we can we can begin to fix them there's not one magic pill that that wipes out every wrong and fixes everything to make everything right but there are a lot of things we could do to make things better so um i appreciate you taking some time to answer that question and and taking time to to come on the show today we really do appreciate uh you coming on the show and sharing your pathway your history uh as well as your ideas for how we can make kids fall in love with the game and 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 get better at this game this beautiful game uh that's going on uh do you have a favorite to win the world cup as uh as we head to break oh um i mean i think you can't you can't say the u.s is not is not your favorite if you're being honest about it but i think that there are it's really interesting because every game sorry i'll make this real quick but every game i watch i feel like clarifies the pool of teams even more for me so it'll be really interesting to see the next round of games for everyone like we saw france again an obvious second favorite so i get a little more information on them and kind of where they stand and so i mean i think u.s france u.s and france are to me the top two teams i've seen so far pretty clearly but uh continuing to learn about them all and it's i mean if some someone out there listening has not been watching you're missing out because it's been so exciting to me it has been amazing uh completely and uh, not in this world cup but i'm telling you over the next 10 years watch out for the spanish women's national team they are about to be on a run in the next 10 years that are going to be hard to stop mark my words they're they're coming yeah and um, and but I'm with you on this World Cup. I, I think it's I think it's the U.S. and France are the two two big favorites, and we'll see how it plays out. So, thanks, Yael, for coming on the show. We really do appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I could talk about this stuff for hours. I appreciate your time. To, Absolutely, to we ask the questions. <laughs> Absolutely, we will have you back on again soon in the near future. Thank thanks for coming on today. That is Yael Averbush West. I'd like to thank her for uh, coming on the show today. Our sponsor this half hour is Charity Water. You can learn more about Charity Water by going to charitywater.org. We will be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world we know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth and when you can bring water into communities it truly transforms them it changes everything now you could know that you'd made a difference you could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Welcome back into the show. Uh, thanks for tuning in this Thursday morning, June the 13th. Um, the Premier League released their schedules and uh, opening weekend. We get a we get a fun matchup for those of us who uh, are are neutrals. 
Manchester United and Chelsea kick off uh, the opening weekend. That's Sunday, August the 11th. Uh, you can find that schedule online um, to see where your club uh, is playing that opening weekend. If you have a favorite Premier League club, uh, or check out their entire fixture schedule uh, as well. But that'll be an exciting uh, matchup to kick off the Premier League season. Uh, that opening weekend, uh, Liverpool will, will, will get things started on Friday against Norwich City. Um, and, uh, and then Manchester City will be playing um, West Ham United on Saturday, August 10th. And you can find the, the total list of matchups. But that, the big headliner that weekend is Manchester United and Chelsea uh, coming up. So, um, you know, it's... Uh, it, it's off season, but it doesn't last very long because we're about to start seeing a bunch of player transfers. We have the Women's World Cup going on uh, this summer, which is fantastic. Uh, Copa America, um, and you, you have all these these, these different uh, tournaments going on that are good. Um, again, um, you know when you when you look at um, the landscape of soccer, it's a serious business and. Um, and it, it never ends and it's always running. And, and I think if we can ever figure out a way to tap our potential and make what we do better and reach the global standard, I think that we're going to uh, eventually be able to see on all levels and in all ways um, the ability to be the best soccer country on earth. I truly believe it. I work for it every day. And uh, I, I thank you for, for tuning in each and every day, uh, weekdays, live at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on DanielWorkman.com. I'd like to thank Yael Averbush-West for coming on today and uh, sharing her thoughts and her ideas. Um, it's, it, it's been a really good week, and I've really enjoyed the, the conversations as we've gone down different uh, aspects of, of women's soccer and, and these ladies and their, their, pa- their personal pathways. Every story's been unique and different, and, um, and I, it, it's, it's not an accident. It's, it's the case for everybody. We all have a little bit of a different story, and it's great being able to share that with all of you. So thanks for tuning in. We will see everybody again tomorrow.